Okay, hi everyone. I think there are some Bibles working their way around. Do put a pour in the air if you need a Bible. Um, we're going to be um, in and out of it throughout our um, sermon together this morning. Okay, you ready for a workout? Um, I'm going to try and work you pretty hard with this. So um, I hope that you can. Um, hope you all had a good breakfast, something energetic and restorative. Um, try and send those calories up towards your brain, whatever the um, uh, the. The process you need to do is, um, because I'm going to be putting you through your paces. Let's pray together, and then we'll begin. Heavenly Father, we really want to thank you so much, just that we can come before you as your creatures. Your Your word tells us that all life looks up to you, that everything that we have comes from you. We look to you for our food, for every need, and God, we, uniquely in your world, we look up to you for for spiritual food. God, we need you to feed our souls. We need you to come and shape us and transform us and make us what we pray so much, God, that you would please come and speak to us by your spirit. Please open up your word so that we might be fed, so that we might be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Okay, I want to start this morning uh, with a question. Just how confident do you feel with a Bible in your hands? Just think about this with me for a minute. If someone came up to you and asked you to explain what the Bible was all about, would you be able to do it? What would you say? Where would you start? Let's say Libby asked you to fill in at Sunday school and you had to tell a story from Genesis or the Psalms or explain one of Jesus' parables. Could you help the children see how that part of the Bible relates to the whole? Would you be able to help them see why it's relevant to their lives today? Would you be able to help them see what God wants them to do in response? Would you be able to handle that passage responsibly? Just imagine yourself kind of sitting there talking to the kids. Imagine if Luke or Mark or whoever wrote that passage was next to you. Would you be embarrassed? Do you think you'd be actually getting it the way that they intended it to be got? This question relates back to Rod's sermon series last year in Philippians, when we were learning about the relationship between Paul and Timothy. Do you remember that? With Paul as the mentor and Timothy as the younger Christian being mentored. Paul didn't just pass on the fruit of his experience to Timothy. He didn't just talk about the difficult situations that he'd been through and his failures and successes. Paul taught Timothy how to handle the Bible. Through years of reading and praying, Paul had learned how to navigate God's word, and he set himself to pass that knowledge along. So when we reach his final letter to Timothy, we hear him say this, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Now, I'm going to square with you this morning. This is something that I feel just a total personal passion about. I believe that every single one of us should feel the force of that verse. I believe that God wants every single person in this room to be equipped to handle the Bible correctly. Why? Because it's God's word to us. The Bible is our maker's instructions. Finding the Bible is like finding a genuine antidote to some kind of terrible poison in this kind of dusty cupboard full of quack remedies. Suddenly you've laid your hand on the real thing. The Bible is a message of rescue from God. So what could be more important than being able to understand what it really means and then being able to pass it on to others. Now, the Bible isn't always a straightforward book to read. 
It's true that the Bible has shallows where an infant can paddle, as C.H. Spurgeon used to say. And so we can give the Bible to a neighbor, even if they've never read it before. If they just pick it up with God's help, they will be able to find out everything that they need to know in order to become a friend of God. But God doesn't want us to remain infants. And that means that we actually need to kind of get into revolutionary mode here and break a paradigm that's creeping up on us as a church creeping up on our society and churches in our society. Because the church in the West is doing a great job of creating a culture of dependency among Christians. So we find it easy to turn turn church into an event where it's the show where the pastor reaches into the hat of some unpromising Bible passage and then pulls out the rabbit and everyone says, wow, what an amazing sermon. God really spoke to me through that. Mm. I guess I better wait till next week, till he can speak to me again. I wouldn't be able to do that for myself. But do you see how completely wrong that is? We're just reinventing medieval Catholicism. We're becoming dependent on a pastor who tells us what the Bible means. That's not what we're supposed to be doing. And that wasn't Paul's approach with Timothy either. Paul wanted Timothy to be able to unpack the Bible for himself. He didn't just want Timothy to meet with God on a Sunday. He wanted Timothy to go home and meet with God every day. So do we believe this? Because if we do, we need to be a church where we don't just come to hear God's message, but we also come to learn how to work out what God's message is from the text. So that's the reason why I'm really excited to be preaching on this passage from Acts 5 this morning. It's got some amazing stuff in it. This is a really heavy sermon. It's a really heavy text. But there are some brilliant things in here, things that we can take out that will really transform us. But the thing I want to kind of point out is that in order to get at those truths, we're going to have to really work on our Bible study skills. And my hope is that these skills, as we explore them and as we work on them and practice them together, will also be things that we can take out into the week so that we can apply these tools to our own Bible reading and we can get the same kind of lessons out of other Bible passages that we might be studying on our own. Okay, so with that intro, will you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? We're going to read Acts 5. Our passage is actually Acts 5, 1 to 11, um, but I'm going to start at chapter 4, verse 32, just to give us the context. All right. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field that he owned and bought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, and he bought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. And then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit And have kept for yourself some of the money that you received for the land. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? 
you have not just lied to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died, and great fear seized all who heard what happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price that you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, this is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. And at that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, and finding her dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Okay, take a seat. So I'm tempted to ask, does anybody want to come forward and give us a report on their giving? <laughs> um, but, but I won't. What do we seriously make of this passage? A superficial reading of this whole section of Acts presents us with some really disturbing information. It seems to suggest that in the early church, everyone had everything in common, that they all sold their houses and their fields to provide funds for the group, and that people died when they didn't report their giving accurately. And this raises some really disturbing questions, because we're used to the idea, aren't we, that the early church provides us with a model to follow. So we find it very easy for us to say, you know, we should just be more like the early church, shouldn't we? Oh, Crossroads is an early church kind of church. Well, is it this kind of church? So we look at the boldness of the early church in chapter 2, and we lift that straight up out of the text and say, okay, yes, God clearly wants that for us now. And then we look at the prayerfulness of the early church in chapter 4, and we lift that straight up out of the text as well and say, okay, that's clearly something that God wants for us now as well. But when we reach chapter 5, we find this very challenging picture of giving and discipline in the early church, and we instinctively say, "Eh, it doesn't really feel like God does want this for us now. So the question is, why? Why are we able to make that distinction between some things that we just say are you know, true and applicable and other things that we can just kind of pass over. Because as a church, we stand on our belief that the Bible is God's inspired word, right? We believe that every page and that every sentence is there for a reason and that we are subject to it, not it to us. We don't believe this just to be awkward or dogmatic. We believe this because we're followers of Jesus and Jesus believed this. So in the Gospels, we find that Jesus' whole ministry is based around the reliability of the Bible. Jesus used the same Old Testament that we use, and when he quoted it, he would use the words, this is what God says. So he was pretty serious about the Bible being God's word. He taught that the Bible was authoritative for all our actions, for all our choices, that it was relevant to his own time, despite the fact that it was written, some of it was written more than a thousand years previously. He taught that it was internally consistent and that it contained everything that we need to know to turn to God in faith. And Jesus also anticipated the writing of the New Testament. So he specifically commissioned his disciples to pass on the things that he had taught them. And he equipped them with the Holy Spirit to remind them of everything that they heard and to lead them into all truth. So we can't just take this book of Acts lightly. Luke, the author, was one of the men that God used to fulfill these promises. God equipped him to write what he wrote as an authoritative message for us. 
So we have to be just really careful about accepting one part of it and then rejecting another part just because it doesn't feel quite right or we don't like it. Because there are plenty of things in the Bible that don't sound quite right, but God still wants us to accept them. So, do we simply have to recognize that this is God's authoritative word, that we all need to get on with selling our houses and our stuff, and if we don't, we can expect a nasty fate? Well, this is the point where we need to remember Paul's point earlier on about correctly handling the word of truth. Because Paul shared this conviction that we have as a church, that the Bible is God's authoritative word. But he also urged us to make sure that we handle it correctly. And that means that we need to be disciplined about the way that we read it. Our task is to work out what the text actually means. What was it that was in God's heart when he inspired Luke to write these words? What was it that these words said to Luke's original audience? And how do they apply to our situation today? Where does this story fit into the broader storyline of the Bible? And what does that tell us about how to apply it? So these are the kinds of questions we need to be asking if we're really going to get to the bottom of this passage in Acts 5. With these kinds of tools in our hands, we can then go on a kind of prayerful detective investigation through the passage, searching for the message that God has got stored up for us inside it. So are you ready for some detective work? Because that's what we're going to be doing this morning. We're going to be applying two fairly well-known detective tools to try and help us figure out what's going on. And the first of them is a magnifying glass. I should have brought a magnifying glass here so you know what we're doing in this first part of the sermon. Just keep it in your mind. So do you remember, right back at the beginning of the passage, I said a superficial reading of Acts 5 suggests that in the early church, everyone had everything in common, that they all sold their houses and fields to provide funds for the group, and that people died when they didn't report their giving accurately. Hmm. Well, with a passage like this, it's easy to get stuck on that kind of superficial reading and to begin debating it before we've really questioned whether we've got our facts straight. But using the magnifying glass on the Bible is about forcing ourselves to put all of that baggage in the mental parking lot for a while and just concentrate on really examining the words on the page very closely. And that's what we're going to do now. So we can say for sure that in the early church, believers did have everything in common because it's clear in the text. So chapter 4, verse 32 tells us that no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything that they had. And then if you go back to chapter 2, verse 44, you find it even more explicitly. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had a need. Now, you can make a case from that to say that in the early church, everyone was expected to sell everything. So chapter 2 could be read that way. When it says, they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had a need, that word they could mean everyone in the church. Chapter 4 can also be read that way. So when it says, from time to time, those who owned land and houses brought, sold them and bought the money from the sales, the phrase, those who owned land and houses, could mean everybody who owned land or a house. But when we turn the magnifying glass on chapter 5, we find that those readings of the passages don't work. So look with me at chapter 5, verse 4. Peter asked Ananias two very important rhetorical questions. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? Now, Peter's purpose here is to really zero in on the thing that made Ananias' behavior unacceptable. And he's got a really surprising diagnosis. 
in that first phrase, didn't it belong to you before it was sold, Peter is reminding Ananias that the church had no claim on his property before he sold it. It belonged to him. He was free to either sell the property or to keep it. So do you see that totally explodes the idea that everyone in the early church was expected to sell everything? It's just not consistent with what Peter says if you look at it closely. If everyone was expected to sell everything, Ananias would not have been free to keep his property. And Peter said that he was. Then Peter tells Ananias that he was free to do what he chose with the money that he got from the sale. That's what Peter means by that phrase. And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal. So immediately we can see that our superficial reading of life in the early church is actually a misreading. It isn't true to the text to say that everyone was obliged to sell everything. And that forces us to go back to Acts 2 and Acts 4 and work out what they really mean. So if the members of the early church still owned property, what did Luke have in mind when he said that no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own? And what did he mean when he said all believers were together and have had everything in common? What he meant was that the church was into radical sharing. They owned stuff, but they didn't treat that stuff as if they owned it. So in the early church, everyone shared everything. If one person had a need for something that, that, other, uh, that another person owned, they borrowed it. And then from time to time, it's true that more wealthy members of the church who had things that they didn't need sold them to provide for poorer members of the church who lacked the things that they did need. So the whole thing was like a kind of cross between real-time church and our Crossroads family fund. Now, I think that there's a really good case to say that this vision of church life really is prescriptive. It does apply to our church life today. So just in the same way that we look at the early church and the way that they prayed, and we say, oh, we want to mirror that, and just in the same way that we look at the early church's boldness and say, yeah, we want to mirror that, I think we should be looking at this vision of radical sharing and then occasional redistribution of wealth from the rich to the poor and wanting to mirror that too. So let's just think about what that's actually going to look like for a minute. For some reason, I've just got this really silly example in my mind from my time when I was a university student in England. Um, I'm a guitarist. I've played the guitar since I was a teenager. And um, when I was at university, I had this cool thing uh, called a four-track tape deck that I used for writing and recording music. Now, at the time, this thing was super high-tech. It was right at the bleeding edge of what was possible. But I can see now all of the students in the audience thinking, tape, what? Like, what are you talking about? Go look in a museum if you want to find one of these things. Um, LAUGHTER Anyway, there was this guy called Ian, I think, in my Christian unit, who also played the guitar. He was very good, and I thought that he could probably enjoy using this uh, thing that I had. So I thought to myself, wouldn't it be nice just to lend it to him when I wasn't using it? But it's funny. As soon as that thought entered my head, then I found my mind producing this barrage of counter-arguments. What if Ian didn't look after it? You know, he wasn't a particularly technical kind of guy. What if he did something stupid with it? You know, what if he broke it? What if I suddenly needed it? You know, the truth was this thing spent most of its time gathering dust on my shelf, but it suddenly seemed to me incredibly plausible that I was about to have a lot of free time. So as soon as I had my my life's lending project all pinned down to an actual thing to lend and an actual person to lend it to, it suddenly became really difficult to actually do it. Now, I just want to highlight that because I think that just puts some flesh on these bones. 
the first practical lesson that we need to learn from Acts 5 is we just need to stop and park getting hung up about this question of whether you have to sell everything you've got to be a real Christian. You don't. But you do have to be really serious about sharing. Members of the early church must have felt exactly the same kind of hesitation and qualms that I just described when the time came to actually lend their stuff. But they overcame that hesitation with God's help. So behind these verses, there must have been all sorts of stories of, you know, I'm, I think Peter could probably do with borrowing my lawnmower, but I'm really not sure if he's going to look after it. You know, I think James could do with bothering, borrowing my Old Testament commentary series, but, you know, maybe I'll need it. But the early church found a way to overcome those qualms, and so must we. They trusted each other with their stuff, and that is still an essential element of godliness. And this is where it gets a bit more serious. If something we own... If we like something that we own so much that we would be terrified for anybody else to use it, guess what? That thing's become an idol. We've forgotten the fact that ultimately everything that we have is ultimately something that's on loan to us from God. So let's go home and think about the people we know and the stuff that we own and where the matches might lie. Maybe each of us should think about bookmarking the real-time church homepage. I said this last night, something that I've done this week, um, having gone through this passage. I made that the homepage on my browser just because it felt like, what's my excuse for not doing that? Anyway, someone came up to me after the service last night and said, do you know we're a church of 1,500 people and there are only 200 people on real-time church? It's a disgrace, just a complete disgrace. If we're serious about sharing, what are we thinking? You know, we've got to put ourselves in a position to help each other. So let's get serious about that. We also need to resolve to be good borrowers. If we borrow something, let's treat it well and give it back quickly. Because that's a way that we can make it easy for ourselves as a church to share and to actually put this passage into practice. All right. So that's the issue of whether or not we need to sell everything. We don't. We need to share everything. And that's a great discovery that we've made using this magnifying glass, trying to look really closely at the words on the page. We still have another detective tool in our pocket that we're going to pull out later on. But before we get to that, I just want to check now whether there isn't anything else in this passage that we can pick up with this magnifying glass we have in hand. You see, so far with the magnifying glass, we've told the text what we want it to teach us. We were worried about this issue of giving. You know, is there an expectation that I really have to sell everything that I have? And we've got some answers about giving. But, you know, looking closely at a Bible passage should never just be a means to answer the questions that are at the top of our mind. We should be asking ourselves, what's top of God's mind? And if giving isn't the issue here in Acts 5, it's our responsibility to work out what the issue really is. So let's look again now at the passage. Did you see that the first thing Peter said to Ananias when he laid down his money at his feet was this? Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and kept for yourself some of the money that you received for the land? And that he concludes, what made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. The theme that really jumps out of this text, if you put the whole giving thing on one side, is not giving, it's honesty. The problem with Ananias and Sapphira's behavior was that they were lying to the church They told Peter that they were giving all the money that they got for their property, and they weren't. Ananias and Sapphira were keeping some of it back for themselves. 
And that should naturally lead us to ask why. Why is it that they did that? Now, from the passage, we know that there were a number of rich people in the church who had sold property and laid it down at the apostles' feet. At least one of them is named. In chapter 4, verse 36, we meet Barnabas, who goes on to be one of the major characters in Acts later on. Now, what seems to have happened with Ananias and Sapphira is that they had looked at these richer people who had sold their assets and given unreservedly, and they coveted their status in the church community. They wanted the kind of reputation that people like Barnabas enjoyed. They wanted people to look at them and say, there's the couple whose field is funding our outreach project. They wanted to be seen as the kind of people who turned over everything to God, but they didn't actually have the guts to do it. They wanted the cachet, but not the cost. So they decided to sell a field, or whatever it was, and to give a portion of the proceeds to the church. And even that would have been fine. We already know from verse 4 that they weren't under any obligation to give it all. No, the problem came when they told Peter that like the other wealthy donors, they were turning over everything that they had received. So this passage is really not so much about giving as it is about lying to the church and the factors that motivated Ananias and Sapphira to lie. And Peter's response tells us just what a huge deal this really is. Can you see, Ananias and Sapphira probably thought that this was just a small thing, you know, just a private little scheme that they'd hatched at home. But Peter uncovers a terrifying extra dimension to it. How is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit, he says. The word that our Bibles have translated filled there, so where it says, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart, is exactly the same word that Luke just used in chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit came and filled the apostles at Pentecost. So where Ananias should have had God's own spirit filling him, seeing through his eyes and working through his body, he had Satan filling him, seeing through his eyes, working through his body. He'd bound himself to something profoundly evil, something completely beyond his power to control, something that would kill him as soon as look at him. Notice what being filled with Satan really looks like. What are its characteristics? Well, it made Ananias and Sapphira focus in on themselves and on their own reputation. They wanted to look like the real deal in church. They wanted other people to see them as the keen couple. Now, if they had been part of Crossroads, if they'd been sitting in this congregation this morning, I'm sure they would have absolutely loved our mission and values. The Crossroads community is resolved to know, to have an authentic walk with Jesus, to grow as part of a house church or a discipleship group, and to go, to be actively involved in making disciples on our street corners. It's attractive, isn't it? Ananias and Sapphira would have liked the sound of it too. They would have liked to be known as the couple who were really going for that. But liking the sound of something and wanting other people to believe that we're living for that something is a million miles away from the vision of Christianity that's laid out in Acts. This passage tells us that it's a mark of Satan's influence when we focus on what other people think of us. God's spirit gets our eyes up and away from ourselves onto others. He turns our minds away from what other people think of us and gets us thinking about other people. And this is a huge challenge for us, isn't it? I know it's a huge challenge for me. My heart is so sick when I hold it up against this test. Because in the West, we're all about 
managing other people's perception of ourselves. Whole churches have bought into this idea. There are tons of supposedly Christian books out there which are devoted to it. We immerse ourselves in the importance of managing our self-image without realizing that the whole paradigm is essentially satanic. God doesn't care what people think of you. He cares what you're actually like inside. And church is his family. We mustn't attempt to persuade each other that we are something that we're not. We mustn't try to look like we spend more time in the Bible than we really spend, or that we pray more than we really pray, or that we have experiences of God that we really haven't experienced, even if everybody else has and we are desperate to fit in. That is not the way that God wants us to live. All right. So remember, we're in this detective investigation. We're looking, uh, we've been using so far a magnifying glass to look really closely at the text and to work out what it means in its context. But you will know no self-respecting detective drama will be complete without the investigation also roaming out a little bit more broadly beyond the scene of the crime to find some important details in the history of the characters or incidents in the past that inform our understanding of the crime scene. And a good Bible study is just the same. And I want to encourage you to kind of take this vision of Bible study out with you into the week. You can almost always get a better understanding of any passage in the Bible that you're reading by roaming a bit wider into the wider narrative, understanding where that part of the Bible fits into the broader context. And this is where our second detective tool is going to come in. We're going to switch now from the magnifying glass to the background check. Now, there are multiple different ways in which you can apply this tool. So you can look at the key characters in the story and see what you can learn from their past history. Or you can look in detail at the place where the events are unfolding. Or you can look at the names of the characters and ask yourself what their significance is. Or you can um, look at the way that the narrative contrasts with the other parts of narrative around it, where it agrees and where it contrasts. And if you listen hard, you'll find Rod doing that pretty much every week that you listen to him. You'll find him doing these kind of background checks, using these kind of tools. <clears throat> but I just want to get us started. I think a, a really good place to start any time that we're attacking a Bible passage is one particular kind of variation of this tool, which is just asking ourselves where the passage that you're reading fits into the overall Bible storyline and asking yourself whether there are any parts of the Bible earlier on in the story that anticipate the part of the story that you're looking at. So let me give you an example now from outside the Bible to help you know where we're going with this. I'm going to show you some clips from a film. The first sequence is the opening montage of a well-known movie, And what I'm going to ask you to do is just to try and guess the film to start with. And just as a clue, it's not The Lord of the Rings. So flip the...
October is inventory time. So right now, Statler Toyota is making the best deals of the year on all 1985 model Toyotas. You won't find a better car at a better price with better service anywhere in Hill Valley. That's Statler Toyota in downtown Hill Valley. But hurry, these prices are only good to the end of the The Senate is expected to vote on this today. Officials at the Pacific Nuclear Research Facility have denied the rumor that a case of missing plutonium was in fact stolen from their vault two weeks ago. A Libyan terrorist group had claimed responsibility for the alleged theft. However, officials now attribute the discrepancy to a simple clerical error. Okay. So, did anyone get it? Bags are very good, very good. I was hoping that it was going to be much harder than that, but obviously you're all very well versed. That's, it's one of my all-time favorite feel-good films, Back to the Future. For those of you who don't remember it, the basic plot is that the hero, Marty McFly, who's played by Michael J. Fox, befriends an eccentric professor called Doc Brown, who's worked out how to time, travel through time in a DeLorean, of all things. He travels back to the 1960s to prevent his parents from splitting up before he's actually born. And then he travels back to the future, back to the 1980s, using the power generated by a lightning strike that hits the clock tower in his hometown. Now, many of you will be confused at this point. Don't worry. You don't need to understand the plot of the movie to get this illustration. Um, now, what I'm going to do is show you um, one of the, the final sequences of the film. It's a very well-known piece where Doc Brown is left hanging from the clock tower, trying to connect up the power cables before the lightning strikes. So those are the two sequences that I want to show you. Um, so I expect you're wondering, what does any of this have to do with the Bible or Acts 5? Fair question. Okay, well, now look with me again at the opening montage, because I want to see if now, in the light of what you've just seen, you can spot anything interesting about it. Did anybody spot that the first time? Interesting, isn't it? What the screenwriter's doing here is using a narrative device called foreshadowing. So right at the beginning of the film, there's a little glimpse of the end, if you've got eyes to see it. The little man hanging from the desk clock on Doc Brown's work, in Doc Brown's workshop foreshadows the real Doc Brown clinging to the real clock at the end of the film. And when you start looking for these kind of things, you find instances of this 
type of foreshadowing in all sorts of places, in films, in books. There are some great examples in Shakespeare. Romeo and Juliet's full of it. What all these examples of foreshadowing have in common is that they're works of fiction. The only way that a story can contain images or sequences at the start that reliably foreshadow events that happen at the end is if someone is in charge of the whole plot, right? So we assume that the screenwriter and the props director put that clock there because they knew where they were going. Well, that brings us to one of the most amazing and wonderful facts about the Bible. And this gives me goosebumps all over wherever, every time I think about this. I actually think it's a really powerful uh, piece of evidence for the existence of God. Because it really is true that the beginning of a story can only reliably foreshadow the end if someone is in charge of the whole thing. And it's also true that the Bible was written by multiple different authors over a period of more than a thousand years, and that much of what it records is just straightforward history. So on paper, it's the last place that you should look if you want to find examples of foreshadowing. But despite that, the Bible has more compelling examples of foreshadowing than any other book in existence. And that, for me, points to only one conclusion. Events and stories in the early part of the Bible accurately foreshadow events and stories at the end of the Bible because God is in charge of the whole plot. God is writing history like a book. He can place images and illustrations of his ultimate intentions in the text because he knows the end from the beginning. Now, in previous sermons, we've talked a little bit about the the way the Old Testament foreshadows the New Testament in kind of broad strokes. So we know that God is building a kingdom which involves his people experiencing his blessing and living in his place. And we know that this kingdom begins to break out in the book of Acts. We spent the whole of the Old Testament waiting for its fulfillment, and then boom, here it is. We know that in the Old Testament, God used the nation of Israel to foreshadow his kingdom. So the nation of Israel is rather like the desk clock in Back to the Future, foreshadowing what's actually really going to happen when Jesus comes. So in the early chapters of Acts, we know that we're looking at the baby steps of the real kingdom, the realized kingdom, the thing that we've been waiting for. We're watching the very first moves that the kingdom makes when it is established for real. And because the Old Testament foreshadows the coming of that kingdom, we can find the parallel point in Old Testament history. We can find the point where God's people, God's place and God's blessing first come together to foreshadow the kingdom that Acts ultimately unveils. It happens in the book of Joshua, when the Israelites cross the Jordan and enter the promised land. And right there, in the early chapters of Joshua, we find an exact parallel of our passage in Acts 5. We find an incident that God, as the great screenwriter of history, inserted into the plot, specifically to help us understand and interpret what it meant when the same thing happened in Acts. It's the story of a man called Achan. Now, many of you will know this story, and we don't have time to go through it in detail. But if you want to, um, you can read it later. It's in Joshua 6 and 7. The basic gist of it is this. When the Israelites first entered the Promised Land, they found themselves confronted with the city of Jericho. God told them how to take it, and they trusted him. They said no to military options, and they marched round and round the city, shouting and praising God until the walls fell down. Now, in Joshua 6, verse 18, God gives the Israelite army a specific command for the assault on Jericho. It didn't apply to any of their subsequent battles. 
they were commanded not to take the plunder of Jericho for themselves. Everything that they found was to be brought into God's, God's treasury. So off they went. The city fell. The plunder was gathered up. But then a few days later, they discovered that actually not all of the plunder was there. They cast lots, clan by clan, and then family by family to find the culprit. And finally, they came to this man called Achan. And in Joshua 7, verse 20, we find him admitting his guilt. It's true, he says, I've sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I did. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and I took them. They're hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. So the people took Achan and his family and they stoned them to death. And that's the last that we hear of them. Now here, our background check has dug up an exact parallel of the Ananias and Sapphira story. So the question we now have to ask ourselves is why is it there? And what extra light does it shed on our text? Well, first of all, let's deal with a couple of incidental things. When you line these two passages up side by side, you see an almost exact balance of ingredients. So in the Akam version, we have a specific command from God not to take the plunder. Then it's followed by covetousness. Akam wants to take some of the beautiful items for himself. Then it's followed by deception. Akam hides the items under his tent. It's followed by divine insight. God knew exactly what he'd done and he brought it to light. And then it's followed by a severe punishment. And in the Ananias story, we have almost exactly the same thing. We have covetousness. Ananias wanted to look like the real deal in church, like the other big givers. Then we have deception. Ananias concealed the fact that he wasn't actually giving all the money. And then we have divine insight. God knew what he had done and brought it to light. And finally, we have the same severe punishment. So you, can you see the balance between these two things? But the missing ingredient in the Acts story is that specific command. So the Israelites were commanded not to take plunder from Jericho. It was made very, very clear what it was they weren't to do. But there is no balancing command in the Acts passage. There's no command telling members of the church that they have to sell everything that they have. So that just confirms for us, if there was any doubt, the conclusion that we came to before If there really was an expectation that we as Christians were supposed to be selling everything that we had, we would expect to see it mentioned explicitly in Acts because every other part of the Akan pattern is mentioned explicitly in Acts except that one. Next, we have the question of whether Peter's approach to Ananias and Sapphira is prescriptive. And if you look at this, it's a really important question. You know, is this the model for church discipline? Is this what it should look like today? Should we be expecting our leaders to be able to see right through to people's hearts with God's help and discern the sins that they've committed? And then should we institute some kind of one strike and you're out policy when people fail? So if any member of the church is found doing something wrong, should we make no effort to encourage them to repent? Um, Should we be giving people any second or third chances? This passage seems to say not. Well, the position of these two stories in the overall Bible narrative gives us the answer, I think. In both cases, these events take place at a unique start point for God's kingdom. So in Joshua, this is the first chance that we get to see what happens when sin and God's foreshadowed kingdom collide. And in Acts, this is the first chance that we get to see what happens when sin and God's realized kingdom 
collide. And in both cases, I think God just wants to start by putting a stake in the ground and saying that his kingdom and sin are fundamentally opposed. Yes, business as usual in the church is a world of second and third chances, and it's right that it should be so. Jesus teaches us that pattern, and we should be grateful for it. I know that personally, I'm certainly grateful for it. I've had a number of second and third chances. But Achan in the Old Testament and Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament are here to give us a shocking reminder that sin, and perhaps especially covetousness and deception, have no place in the life of God's church. They're fundamentally opposed to what God's church is all about. They're marks of Satan's kingdom, not God's. But the main thing I think that this Old Testament parallel is here to do is to help us finally find the true application of this Ananias and Sapphira story. Let's try to get at it this way. What would you say if I asked you what Ananias and Sapphira should have done? What should they have done? in their circumstances? How should they have changed their behavior? When I first read this passage, I thought that what they should have done is tried to just sum up the guts to give it all. Because they were so close to real obedience, weren't they? Well, that's what it looks like. If only they had just given all the money. But can you see now how wrong that is? Ananias and Sapphira were a couple with a gap between the public image of themselves that they wanted to present and the inner reality of what they were actually prepared to do. If they had just kind of screwed up their faces and made that effort to to go and give all the money, forcing up their inner reality to match the public image that they desired. um, Sorry, that's what they would have just been forcing up their inner reality to match that public image. But the key lesson of this passage is that that public image was an idol the Akan story teaches us, did you spot it in the text, that the sin of Akan is ultimately covetousness? And Ananias and Sapphira have the same thing going on. They wanted to look like the real deal in church and simply forcing up their practice to the level of the public profile that they desired would have left that completely untreated. So do you see the application now? We have to bring the level of the public image that we desire down down to the level of what's really going on inside. So what should they have done? Ananias and Sapphira should have opened up to their friends in the church and told them that they were a mess. They were wretched and helpless. They wanted to be part of God's people, but when they tried, they just found themselves shipping in all of their worldly priorities and jealousies. They should have been seeking prayer and help from their fellow believers not trying to persuade them that they were somewhere further up the road of commitment. Akan should have gone to his commander and told him that he didn't trust himself near the plunder of Jericho because he knew that he was weak. The call of this passage is a call to reality in our corporate life. We have to take our masks off. None of us is finding it easy to know or to grow or to go. So let's be real with each other. We mustn't come here to act out the public image that we covet. We must come here to be who we are before God, content for other people to know how incomplete and patchy that really is. If we struggle to worship God in the week, let's not come here and make other people believe that it's the most natural thing we ever did. And if we struggle to share our faith with others, 
let's not come here and create the impression that we're covertly leading some kind of evangelistic revolution. I don't think it's any accident that the man on the other side of this exchange with Ananias and Sapphira is Peter. Ask yourself, how did Peter's public image look? The answer is that Peter was broken and everybody knew it. He was leading a church that was all about boldness, but everybody knew just how bold he was just a couple of weeks before he denied Jesus. And maybe that's why God put him in that position. Because God just wants to show us in this passage that if Christianity is opposed to just one thing, it's opposed to pretense. God wants us to be real, not to jack up our deeds to meet the public image that we desire, but to be content with a public image that accurately reflects what's really going on inside. Do you remember that verse from the Old Testament? God looks at the outward appearance. Sorry, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Let's pray. God, would you please just let this message really fall on our hearts this morning. Would you move among us as we think about it? Because we are just right from our mother's knee. We are, we are pumped with this message that we are here to manage an image and that we're here to project an image. And God, your word tells us so clearly that that is just absolutely of the devil and that we are to be freed from it and to free each other from the expectation that that's what we're really here to do. And God, we cannot do that on our own. So would you fill us with your spirit? Would you please drive that out from inside us? God, that we might actually be the people that you want us to be. That we might be with each other what we are before you on our knees. And Lord, might you be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Can we just do something different right now? Can we just take a minute or two and just uh, ask ourselves the question, what image am I trying to protect in my own life? Or what am I on the outside? What are the things that are on the outside of my life that don't accurately reflect what's on the inside? We're just going to take a minute. I'm going to play if you have a pen and you want to write some stuff down and just apply that, directly apply that to our lives this morning, that might be a great step forward. So let's do that. Let's just take a couple minutes, think, pray, and apply.
listening, Jesus, and we just invite you. We invite you into these areas that we protect. We see laid out before us the it's like a, a path that leads to destruction, and we don't want to follow. any word in this song that smacks of hypocrisy in the sense that you want people to think it is true of you, but it isn't really true, you just stop and pray that you would allow that, that God would allow that to become a reality in you. 